welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It was a wonderful week in South Florida for the ALA South Florida Conference. Always an awesome conference. Major shout out and thank you to all the awesome panels and panelists, especially that Canadian immigration panel with Julie Kruger, Jessica Jensen, and John Pratt. Definitely learned a lot. I don't know why Canada issues always intimidate me so. Probably because the Canadians are suspiciously nice and oddly comfortable with the cold. Everyone catch that iguana, by the way? Hanging out in the tree with Biscayne Bay and the downtown skyline behind him? Possibly the most Miami scene of all time. The circuits did not account for this wonderful conference or the hardships of cross-country travel and published nine decisions this week. But they're very interesting, of course. Starting off with a trio of First Circuit decisions. Apologies, though, for the very, very slight audio difficulties in the first two cases. Blame the iguana. Starting off with some decisions from the First Circuit. First, Aguilar Escoto v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on February 7th, 2023. This is the second time that this case has been before the First Circuit. And now, for the second time, the first is sending it back to the BIA by published decision. This time, for the BIA having, quote, again failed to properly consider significant documentary evidence, end quote. Let's begin. Ms. Aguilar Escoto is from Honduras. She was removed soon after entering the U.S. in 2005, and she re-entered without authorization in 2009. DHS reinstated what must have been a final order of removal from 2005 and sought to physically remove Ms. Aguilar Escoto again. But this time, Ms. Aguilar Escoto was permitted to apply for relief before an immigration judge, the only thing permitted when DHS reinstates a final order, withholding of removal under the INA and Convention Against Torture Protection. Ms. Aguilar Escoto based her claim on terrible harm suffered at the hands of her husband and then, after the divorce, her ex-husband. 
And because the case is about evidence, here's what she provided in support of her claims, in addition to her own in-court testimony. She submitted a psychological evaluation from the United States, a record from a psychiatrist in Honduras showing treatment in that country, a family court order against Ms. Aguilar Escoto's husband from Honduras, three formal police complaints against the husband from Honduras showing the abuse, Ms. Aguilar Escoto's own declaration, and affidavits from those who knew all about the harm. The immigration judge denied in 2014, though, finding Ms. Aguilar Escoto not credible, notwithstanding all of that evidence. Quote, the IJ also found that Ms. Aguilar Escoto could not overcome her lack of credibility with enough objective evidence to establish past persecution. End quote. That's interesting. Usually a cat-type analysis there. Not usually relevant for past persecution claims. Adverse credibility usually destroys the claim to everything except cat protection. And cat is all about torture, of course, not persecution. So yes, you have piqued my interest, First Circuit. A potential withholding of removal grant, notwithstanding an adverse credibility finding. The BIA dismissed the appeal, but didn't discuss the other evidence that Ms. Aguilar Escoto submitted. The BIA dismissed simply by affirming the adverse credibility finding. So the First Circuit sent it back. And it looks like I was definitely wrong above since at least this decision's initial publication in 2017 in the First Circuit, quote, because withholding of removal requires only an objective showing rather than a subjective one, a lack of credibility is not fatal to the claim, end quote. Put another way, in the First Circuit, a non-citizen can obtain withholding of removal as well as cat protection, even if deemed not credible. How about that? On remand, though, the BIA dismissed the appeal again in 2018. This time, according to the First Circuit, the BIA, quote, mentioned some of the objective evidence, end quote, but did not mention all of it, including not all of the criminal complaints documenting the abuse in Honduras, nor the psychological evaluation and diagnosis from the United States. Fatally, the BIA then held, quote, on this record, end quote, that Ms. Aguilar Escoto had failed to establish grounds for overturning the immigration judge or that she had established past persecution. And now, before the First Circuit again, the court believed the BIA's record incomplete. Because according to the First Circuit, the BIA and IJs for that matter, quote, cannot turn a blind eye to salient facts and must fairly apprise the record, end quote. Great quote. To the First Circuit, the BIA was partially blind here. It clearly misconstrued the record, believing only two police reports existed when there were three. And the third report importantly showed that the ex-husband, quote, was investigated because there was evidence that he had struck Miss Aguilar Escoto and threatened to kill her, end quote. Highly relevant to the court, particularly as a, quote, credible specific threat can amount to persecution if they are severe enough, end quote like a death threat. Put another way, to the First Circuit, the BIA denied a past persecution claim by ignoring what could be itself past persecution. Can't do that. Repeat after me, death threats alone qualify. The psychological report also discussed the death threats and explained how they served as one basis for the psychological diagnosis. So shouldn't have ignored that report either. As with all psychological reports, quote, the evaluation is certainly probative for its determination that Ms. Aguilar Escoto suffered from symptoms consistent with major depressive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder in remission, end quote. 
So yeah, submit those psychological reports in support of your asylum claims if, for nothing else, credibility and factual corroboration. Rejecting some of Oyl's other arguments, and after going down a bit of a rabbit hole on standards of review, the First Circuit remanded again. Therefore, congratulations Kenyon C. Hall and Jack W. Pierozolo from Sidley, Austin, Charles G. Roth from the National Immigration Justice Center, and Carlos E. Estrada for Petitioner. And just to throw a little bit of love on standards of review. Quote, Although the issue is not raised by the parties, the BIA should have applied de novo review rather than clear air review in determining whether the past threats and harm Ms. Aguilar Escoto experienced rose to the level of past persecution. End quote. That is significant for many reasons, appellate practitioners. One, always want to be in de novo land rather than clear air. It essentially means that the BIA must decide in the first instance whether a non-citizen's harms rise to the level of past persecution. But two, the First Circuit appears to be saying that even though it was disputed whether Ms. Aguilar Escoto had indeed been harmed, remember she was found not credible? Quote, the BIA should have completed its own assessment of whether the documentary evidence provided rose to the level of past persecution, end quote. Very interesting. Where else might such a Patel-implicating argument be made? And that is Aguilar Escoto v. Garland. Next out of the First Circuit is Hernandez Martinez v. Garland, published on February 2nd, 2023. Actually from last week, but it didn't appear in the First Circuit's system until this Monday. So you get it this week. This case is about torture. Mr. Hernandez Martinez is from Guatemala. Unless you think everyone you hear about on the podcast has terrible lives abroad, quote, until shortly before his departure, he had a good life in Guatemala and made approximately $5,000 per month between his taxi business and a job with Coca-Cola, end quote. But then he was stopped by men who threatened to murder him if he didn't pay them money. He went to police despite being told not to by his assailants. Quote, two police officers told Mr. Hernandez Martinez not to be afraid because they would take matters into their own hands, and they offered to drive him home. Instead, they delivered him to the men who had threatened him earlier. All men beat him horribly, stabbed him with a knife, burnt him, and beat him until he became unconscious. After three or four days in the hospital, Mr. Hernandez Martinez fled to the U.S., where he was placed in removal proceedings. He applied for asylum and withholding of removal based on his asserted particular social group of, quote, business owners in Guatemala who have a high profit, end quote. The merits hearing happened five years later. And a bit incredibly, based on how the First Circuit describes the harm at least, the immigration judge held that the, quote, past abuse at the hands of his police-supported extortioners did not rise above unpleasantness, harassment, and even basic suffering, end quote. Those are the First Circuit's words, not the IJ's. The IJ also held, however, that the particular social group wasn't cognizable anyway. Then the IJ denied cat protection. The BIA affirmed, without opinion. It appears that the First Circuit does not agree with the IJ on that first holding about past persecution harm, but the court did agree that the particular social group of business owners in Guatemala who have a high profit is not a valid particular social group. It's not particular enough, it's too broad, and relies too much on the asserted member's wealth 
to satisfy the legal requirements. For these reasons, the First Circuit affirmed the denial of asylum and withholding of removal, got to be harmed on account of one of the five protected grounds. Convention Against Torture Protection, however, is a different story. As always, CAT doesn't require a nexus to a protected ground, and if granted, for all intents and purposes, and as actually applied in the vast majority of cases, it permits a non-citizen to remain in the U.S. indefinitely. The non-citizen just doesn't have a path to a green card. Dare I say, evidence of the absurdity of asylum law's five protected ground nexus requirement? Seems absurd here. To the First Circuit, quote, as a matter of law, we reject the implicit claim that the harm visited upon Mr. Hernandez Martinez was not severe enough to qualify as torture, end quote. As a matter of law. Is your case like this? If so, your client has been tortured as a matter of law. Quote, the assailants not only beat Mr. Hernandez Martinez senseless, they also sliced his wrist with a knife and intentionally burned the flesh on his foot as they repeated their threats, sending him unconscious to a hospital where he remained for three to four days, end quote. And in fact, in matter of J.E., not the most favorable cat decision to ever be issued by the BIA, quote, the BIA itself recognized that intentionally burning a person with a cigarette can constitute torture, end quote. Matter of J.E. And importantly, even the regulations read that, quote, torture is defined as any act, end quote, which the First Circuit, quote, implies that a single occurrence is enough, end quote. Citing to Professor Deborah Anker out of Harvard for that, by the way, congrats, Professor. So Mr. Hernandez-Martinez has suffered past torture. The First Circuit therefore sent it back to the BIA to determine if he satisfied the other elements required of cat protection. But he's definitely got at least one of the other elements, right? The government in the form of police were involved, remember? And again, but for the strange requirements that the fear of death or horrible suffering must be on account of one of the five very specific reasons, Mr. Hernandez-Martinez would likely be getting asylum and be on a path to a green card and naturalization. De facto lifetime cat protection is better than nothing. Congratulations, Randy Olin, for Mr. Hernandez-Martinez. And that is Hernandez Martinez v. Garland. Still with the First Circuit. The First Circuit had a lot to say this week. This is Barnica Lopez v. Garland, published by the First on February 8th, 2023. This case is about Nexus. Miss Barnica Lopez and her minor daughter are asylum seekers from Honduras. Before coming to the United States, for three years, Ms. Bernica Lopez and her husband were in the gold industry, buying in Guatemala and selling in Honduras. Ms. Bernica Lopez's husband would make the drive often. One day, after a few years of doing this, Ms. Bernica Lopez and her husband, named Rene, were followed by a big truck. They shook the tail, but it happened again a few months later, in an incident that, quote, escalated into a violent attack involving gunfire and at least one of the attackers being shot and perhaps killed by one of Renee's and Miss Bernica Lopez's two traveling companions, end quote. Miss Bernica Lopez and Renee reported it to police in Honduras, and the couple stopped their gold sale business altogether out of fear. But that threat soon followed, phone calls and text messages that said things like, quote, this isn't over, end quote, and quote, what you've done will not be left unpunished, end quote. Their associates in the incident received similar threats as well. 
Miss Bernica Lopez and Renee were told that revenge was coming, and that the callers knew that they had a daughter, an infant at the time, who the callers said that they would, quote, start with, end quote. What would you do? Miss Bernica Lopez and Renee left Honduras. They fled to the United States. They entered the U.S. without authorization in December 2013. They applied for asylum and related relief and removal proceedings, claiming that the death threats constituted past persecution in and of themselves, and that the reason was on account of their family relationship, a particular social group. And didn't I just say that death threats alone can constitute past persecution in the First Circuit? An immigration judge denied and the BIA affirmed. Because regardless of whether the death threats could be past persecution, said the agency, they didn't occur on account of family membership. They were on account of a desire for retribution from those attackers. The First Circuit agreed. First, it quoted from 15-year-old precedent to hold that, quote, for both asylum and withholding of removal, a causal connection exists only if the statutory protected ground was one central reason for the harm alleged, end quote. That is, that the nexus requirement for asylum and withholding of removal is the same. A quote that doesn't account for or address the different statutory language used for nexus under the asylum statute as compared to the withholding of removal statute, the matter of CTL issue that I'm always talking about. And if I recall, the First Circuit stated just a few months ago that the issue remains open in its circuit, 15-year-old precedent quote notwithstanding. That is, that the nexus to a protected ground element might be easier to satisfy for withholding of removal than it is for asylum in the First Circuit. But here's this decision with a quote that indicates otherwise. I still say it's an open issue in the First, though. Anyway, and applying that standard here, quote, to qualify as one central reason for the harm, the protected ground cannot be incidental, tangential, superficial, or subordinate to another reason for the harm, end quote. Ms. Bernica Lopez argued that the whole family was at risk and suffered threats because of their relationship to Rene, who was himself a successful businessman. But, quote, both Ms. Bernica Lopez and Rene testified that the assailants' threats were motivated by a desire both to extort their money and to exact revenge for their associate having shot one of the assailants, end quote. Very scary, but it doesn't qualify for asylum or withholding of removal, said the court. Revenge in a vacuum isn't persecution on account of a protected ground. To the First Circuit, this wasn't a case where the BIA improperly believed that family could not be a particular social group. It can be. Or that asylum seekers don't warrant asylum when family membership plus another unprotected ground are central reasons for the harm. It can be. Rather, the agency agreed that family can be a particular social group and acknowledged that it might even have a role to play in this case. It just wasn't a central reason for the threats and the fears. The BIA conducted the right analysis, said the First Circuit, and the court saw no error in the substance of that analysis. Now, according to the panel, quote, in order for family membership to serve as the linchpin for a protected social group, it must be at the root of the persecution, so that family membership itself brings about the persecutorial conduct, end quote. Pretty high standard. Not met here. This, said the court, was primarily a personal dispute centered on revenge. The First Circuit refused to consider other proffered particular social groups for the same reason that the BIA had refused. Ms. Bernica Lopez apparently didn't make them before the immigration judge. That's the requirement to make all your proffered particular social groups before the IJ for a matter of WYC and HOB, 2018. 
Therefore, the First Circuit dismissed Ms. Bernica Lopez and her minor daughter's case. And that is Bernica Lopez v. Garland. What up, BIA? This is Matter of JLL, published by the BIA on Friday. This is a short case about deficient notices to appear. Kind of. Not really. Because this is a pre-IRIRA case. An exclusion case. A case before exclusion and deportation proceedings both got put together into simple removal proceedings. And of course, before NTAs even came into existence. Mr. JLL was placed into exclusion proceedings in 1995 by the filing of a Form I-122, a notice to applicant for admission detained for hearing before immigration judge. Say that five times fast. The Form I-122 filed did not have the date of the first hearing or the location of the immigration court. It said it was all, quote, to be calendared, end quote. Mr. JLL was ultimately ordered excluded from the United States, a legal fiction because it would appear he was actually inside the U.S., where it would appear that he remained for decades thereafter. After the publication of Pereira and Niz Chavez by the Supreme Court, he filed a motion to reopen his exclusion proceedings. Pereira and Niz Chavez, of course, are the decisions about deficient NTAs that we're always talking about. And now we all know following matter of Fernandez by the BIA and the circuit precedent that it was relying upon, that if timely raised, DHS needs to deal with a deficient NTA issue. DHS and the court can't just ignore it. And maybe, just maybe, final orders of removal issued in proceedings initiated through a deficient NTA should be reopened. Maybe. Mr. JLL wanted to reopen now so that he could apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B. He almost surely didn't have the years or qualifying relatives required for that relief in 1995, but he does now. And as we all know from Matter of Chen and the circuit precedent that that was following, even final orders of removal premised on deficient NTAs don't implicate the stop-time rule for non-LPR cancellation of removal, and the continuous physical presence keeps running. But the BIA did not reopen the case here. Because to be fair, there were a few things wrong with Mr. JLL's argument. First, of course, the motion to reopen was untimely by like two and a half decades. So we're in sua sponte reopening territory, never the best place to be. Second, the whole reason for this deficient NDA case law thing is because the notice to appear statute at INA section 239A is very specific as to what must be in a notice to appear. That's what the Supreme Court has now made clear twice. But INA section 239A doesn't say what should be in a form I-122. Indeed, that statute didn't even exist when exclusion proceedings existed or the Form I-122 was being used. And neither the statute nor the regulations in effect at the time Form I-122s were being used said anything about what information must be in an I-122, apparently. So there's no statute or regulation violated by a deficient I-122, said the BIA. In fact, an I-122 that lacks the date and location of a first hearing is arguably not even deficient, as again, nothing is apparently requiring that specific information be in that document, said the BIA. And the Supreme Court kind of said it too in dicta in Nis Chavez, at least with orders to show cause, the NTA predecessor. 
And there was a third problem to the BIA, which, to be honest, was the first thing I thought of when I read the opening paragraph of the decision. Thank you to my mentor, IJs. Mr. JLL can't apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal anyway. Remember, he's in exclusion proceedings. If the BIA reopened them, he'd remain in exclusion proceedings, even though exclusion proceedings haven't existed since 1997. And IJ could still hold exclusion proceedings today, and would have to follow pre-IRIRA law and procedure. Pretty wild, and it happens rarely. But it does happen. And it can be a huge benefit for non-citizens to get into reopened exclusion or deportation proceedings, if for no other reason than because of the former blanket criminal waiver at former INA Section 212C. But in this case, if exclusion proceedings are reopened, Mr. JLL is limited to exclusion relief. And that definitely didn't include non-LPR cancellation of removal because it didn't exist yet in 1995. So even if exclusion proceedings were reopened, Mr. JLL couldn't apply for the relief that is forming the whole basis for his request to reopen. Tough nut to crack, and uncracked here. The BIA therefore did not reopen Mr. JLL's final order of exclusion. And that is Matter of JLL. Here's an interesting case, Adji v. Mayorkas, published by the Fourth Circuit on February 7th, 2023. This case is all about marriage. Ghanaian marriage, to be specific. Mr. Adji married Ms. Boatong in Virginia in 2001. Ms. Boatong is a lawful permanent resident. Ms. Boatong had previously been married to Mr. Gassi. The two divorced pursuant to Ghanaian customary law before Miss Boateng's marriage to Mr. Adji. Quote, in accordance with Ghanaian customary law, Miss Boateng and Mr. Gassi contacted their respective families in Ghana, and the heads of each household performed a ceremonial divorce on January 6, 2000. End quote. Some other stuff then happened as required in Ghana, and the couple divorced. All seems well so far. The thing is, though, when Ms. Boateng and Mr. Gassi were divorced, they were living in Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. They had come here after winning the diversity lottery. No small feat in and of itself, but not at issue in this case. Fast forward, Mr. Adji gets married to Ms. Boateng and becomes an LPR through her, 13 years ago. He eventually applies to naturalize. But at that point, USCIS says, oops. We shouldn't have given you a green card and we're denying naturalization because according to USCIS, quote, under controlling Virginia law, the Commonwealth would not recognize a divorce granted by a nation where neither spouse was domiciled at the time of the divorce, end quote. Neither Miss Boateng nor her ex-husband were living in Ghana at the time they got divorced, so Virginia would not recognize the divorce, said USCIS. On that technicality, Mr. Adji, a non-party victim to the divorce gone wrong, not only can't naturalize, but might be in big trouble with his green card. So he sued. The district court agreed with USCIS. The Fourth Circuit did not. As interesting as those facts are, and as necessary if you ever get a Ghana marriage or divorce case, it really comes down to a bit of a narrow legal issue. Whether Mr. Adji and Ms. Boateng were legally married such that Mr. Adji appropriately obtained LPR status comes down to the law of the state where they married, the Commonwealth of Virginia. So whether they were legally married comes down to whether Ms. Boateng was lawfully divorced in Virginia at the time that they were married. 
To the Fourth Circuit, she was. The U.S. Constitution requires that Virginia give full faith and credit to divorces performed in other states. What about other countries? Well, that comes down to comedy. Not comedy like Mel Brooks. Can't wait to see History of the World Part 2, by the way. But comedy. The legal term for, quote, a matter of favor or courtesy, based on justice and goodwill, end quote. Done so each nation's citizens are respected and treated fairly in other nations when they are abroad, essentially. And, quote, the Supreme Court of Virginia has emphasized the importance of comedy for fostering good relations between sovereigns and promoting judicial economy, end quote. Love this argument and citation, by the way, counsel. For comedy to apply in Virginia, there are four factors that need to be present. One, the other sovereign had jurisdiction to enforce its order within its own domain. Two, the relevant law of the other sovereign, Ghana, is reasonably comparable to that of Virginia. Three, the decree, here the divorce, was not obtained through fraud. And four, enforcement of the other sovereign's decree would not be contrary to public policy of Virginia. To the Fourth Circuit, it all came down to number two and number four. And with number two, quote, No Virginia appellate court has ever refused to recognize a divorce obtained in a foreign country by citizens of that country because neither spouse was domiciled there at the time of the divorce, end quote. Important fact. It's not the same as with states, where domicile is important for recognition in Virginia, because foreign nations have different interests than do U.S. states in governing marriage and divorce. If a foreign government doesn't want to require domicile for two parties to divorce from that country, who is Virginia to say otherwise? Said the Fourth Circuit in so many words. But is such a rule contrary to Virginia public policy? Prong number four. Well, among other rationales, quote, the Supreme Court of Virginia has repeatedly recognized that the public policy of Virginia favors recognizing divorces whenever possible, so that one's marital status does not change with one's location, end quote. Indeed, relying on a Virginia Supreme Court case, quote, a foundational aspect of its public policy is upholding the validity of the marriage status as for the best interest of society, end quote. Some spot-on research going on in this litigation. To sum it up, quote, a divorce obtained in a foreign nation by its own citizens is not invalid in Virginia simply because these citizens were not domiciled in their home country at the time of the divorce, end quote. All of this makes Miss Boateng and Mr. Gassi's divorce recognized by Virginia, meaning Miss Boateng properly married Mr. Ajay, which means Mr. Ajay wins and is about to become a U.S. citizen. Judge Wilkinson disagreed in dissent. Congratulations to Mr. Ajay, and to Anihia Johanna Bowalda and Jason West of Just Law International, PC. And that is Ajay v. Mayorkas. Next is Mon Damaneng v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on February 6, 2023. This decision is about corroboration. Mr. Arafat Mon Damanang is an asylum seeker from Cameroon. But the petitioner in his briefs and the Fifth Circuit refer to him as Arafat, and so, who am I to do otherwise? Arafat is an English speaker who claimed to fear the French-speaking government in Cameroon's ongoing civil war. 
He didn't have corroborating evidence of his claims, though, including his alleged arrest and torture in that country, and the IJ deemed his testimony in court vague. So he was found not credible. The BIA remanded when Arafat presented more evidence on appeal, though. But Arafat lost his attorney on remand somehow, and appearing pro se before a new IJ, he lost again. He was deemed credible this time, but still, said the IJ, the affidavits and new evidence that he submitted didn't actually corroborate his specific claims. Plus, reasoned the new IJ, the harm alleged wasn't bad enough. This time, the BIA affirmed. Appearing to get an attorney for the petition for review, Arafat brought procedural and substantive challenges. The Fifth Circuit rejected them all. First, the Fifth Circuit disagreed with Arafat's claims brought under the BIA's decision in matter of lack. As the Fifth Circuit reads that decision, when an IJ is going to deny relief for a non-citizen's failure to present, quote, specific evidence, end quote, corroboration, the IJ must give the non-citizen an opportunity to explain why he couldn't reasonably obtain the evidence, and then determine whether that explanation is sufficient, such that the failure of the evidence to be in the record shouldn't be held against the applicant. In this decision, the Fifth Circuit wasn't sure whether it needs to actually even enforce matter of lack, but it avoided the issue by reading that decision as only applying where an IJ demands, quote, specific corroborating evidence, end quote. Here, in contrast, quote, the IJ engaged in a comprehensive analysis of why Arafat's credible testimony was not corroborated by the evidence provided. The IJ decided that such evidence would have been reasonably available to Arafat, end quote. Matter of lack doesn't apply because the IJ wasn't requesting specific evidence. The IJ was just holding that all evidence in totality didn't sufficiently corroborate Arafat's claim. Nuanced. Fair enough, said Arafat, but in the alternative, he argued, he did provide sufficient corroborating evidence. He was found credible after all, and he showed the IJ how he had injured his foot. And he provided country condition evidence that corroborated his claims on both a macro and a micro level. Those reports discussed, for example, security forces using bullets and tear gas against protesters on the same day that Arafat credibly testified that he himself was detained. But, because, quote, there was no primary source evidence linking Arafat to the claimed torture, military beatings, or detention, end quote, the IJ properly found to the Fifth Circuit that Arafat, an asylum seeker deemed credible who fled a country at war, had failed to meet his burden. So said the fifth, at least applying its deferential standard of review on the issue. Arafat therefore lost his case. All forms of relief and protection denied. And that is Mona Benang v. Garland. Next is Hernandez v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on February 6th, 2023. This decision is about jurisdiction, Patel and Guerrero Lasprilla, the nerdiest of all issues, but very important in our weird world and to you, weird listeners. Before getting to the facts, I'll get straight to the point on the naughty issue. Patel divests circuit courts of reviewing the BIA's denial of certain forms of discretionary relief, including non-LPR and LPR cancellation of removal. But Guerrero Lasprilla issued before Patel, thank God, preserves jurisdiction over mixed questions of law and fact generally. One question after Patel that we're grappling with is whether with these statutory designated forms of relief where jurisdiction is divested, 
Do circuits still have authority to review mixed questions of law and fact, even when tethered to those designated forms of relief? Say, cancellation of removal, for example. Honestly, I believe that the courts have universally said yes on that bigger question. So the disputes are becoming more specific. What qualifies as a reviewable mixed question of law and fact that the courts retain jurisdiction to review? When cancellation of removal or the other grounds of relief designated at the jurisdiction divesting statute are denied by the IJ and BIA. Well, here, the Sixth Circuit is holding that, quote, the question whether the historical facts show that an immigrant lacks good moral character also qualifies as a mixed question within our jurisdiction, end quote. The circuits can review no good moral character findings, even when tethered to the denial of cancellation of removal. The reason, said the circuit, is that Patel doesn't apply where there's no factual dispute about what a non-citizen did here, Mr. Hernandez, and whether what the non-citizen did means that the non-citizen lacks good moral character. When the facts aren't in dispute, and all that's in dispute is whether those facts negate a good moral character finding, Patel is irrelevant. Whether contested facts, quote, satisfy a legal standard, end quote, can be reviewed by a circuit. And ponder, might you, what doesn't have a legal standard at immigration law? Putting the whole thing into more layman's terms, quote, a non-citizen thus could not challenge an immigration judge's finding that he had driven while intoxicated on several occasions when that finding undergirded the holding that he lacked good moral character, end quote. However, a non-citizen could, quote, raise a challenge that the good moral character provision violated the due process clause because it was void for vagueness, end quote. Or a non-citizen could, quote, raise a challenge that the BIA improperly interpreted the phrase good moral character to allow consideration of an immigrant's expunged prior convictions, end quote. Or like here, a non-citizen could challenge whether the undisputed facts satisfy INA Section 101F's good moral character standard even though, per the statute, it's literally a standardless standard, and conceivably covers any negative act. All right. Quote, Nothing in the text gives the Attorney General discretion to decide whether a non-citizen has good moral character, just as nothing in the text gives the Attorney General discretion to decide whether a non-citizen has remained in this country for 10 years, or has been convicted of a disqualifying felony. End quote. Well said. These aren't discretionary analyses. They have standards. But such a holding does enter a circuit split on the side of reviewability and aligns with an Eighth Circuit decision at a minimum, by the way. More surely to come in the coming months. But reviewability is certainly present at least in the Sixth and the Eighth. The holding even relies on two, count them, two decisions from the most aptly named judge of all time, Judge Learned Hand. If I get another decision relying on Judge Learned Hand before the AILA National Conference this summer, I will create a Learned Hand sound for the podcast. Write your congressman. So there's the nerdy stuff. Patel avoided. An important holding. But so often of late, when the issue is reviewed, the circuit then affirmed the IJ and the BIA. The BIA was not wrong, said the court, to hold that Mr. Hernandez's, quote, negative attributes, including two drinking and driving convictions, outweighed his positive attributes, including his support of his ill wife, end quote. True. Ms. Hernandez has lived in the U.S. a long time, he cares for his wife, and he seems to work very hard. And his U.S. citizen wife has diabetes and a heart condition, requiring care and preventing her from working. But to the IJ and the BIA, 
Mr. Hernandez seemed to be a bit untruthful about his tax history, and he's been convicted of both possessing a fake ID and two DUI offenses. After some back and forth between the BIA and the IJ, a final IJ held that Mr. Hernandez's removal would indeed cause exceptional, extremely unusual hardship. No small feat, but nevertheless that Mr. Hernandez didn't have the requisite good moral character to warrant non-LPR cancellation of removal. Too many criminal interactions, and not a great police report based on alcohol consumption. Even though Mr. Hernandez no longer drinks, and despite the fact that his removal will cause a very high hardship to his U.S. citizen wife, cancellation of removal was denied by balancing the factors. It didn't help that by the time that the BIA at least adjudicated the issue, Attorney General Barr had issued matter of Castillo-Perez, which remains good law to this day, and it creates a presumption of bad moral character for two DUIs in the statutory good moral character, period. And so, notwithstanding the great holding for non-citizens in the Sixth Circuit on jurisdiction and reviewability, Mr. Hernandez lost his case. And that is Hernandez v. Garland. Next is Isla Saldana v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on February 7th, 2023. This decision is about administrative closure. Admin closure is back before the circuits. Truly, a great time to be alive. Mr. Isla Saldana is from Mexico and has been in removal proceedings since 2012. But at some point during those proceedings, he applied for U non-immigrant status before USCIS. He must have been the victim of some crime and cooperated with law enforcement. Immigration judges don't have authority to grant new visas. They should, but they don't. Only USCIS does. And so, the IJ administratively closed proceedings while Mr. Isla Saldana sought the status. But when USCIS denied his application, DHS moved to recalendar the matter, and the IJ did. Seems like Mr. Isla Saldana wasn't able to get his U-Visa certification from law enforcement. Seems like law enforcement didn't want to play ball. But at a hearing in 2018, Mr. Ayala Saldana advised that he intended to try again for a U-Visa. This time, the IJ set an individual hearing anyway, noting that proceedings did not need to be administratively closed for USAIS to grant or even approve a U-Visa. The individual hearing went forward, the IJ denied relief, and Mr. Ayala Saldana was ordered removed. The BIA affirmed. After all, by that time, Attorney General Jeff Sessions had taken away admin closure entirely. But it's back, as we all know. So Mr. Ayala Saldana timely filed a motion to reconsider with the BIA. With the matter of Cruz Valdez issued by Attorney General Garland, the BIA did indeed consider whether admin closure was warranted, now that it was back, but believed that it wasn't. The BIA denied the motion to reconsider on the merits. Mr. Ayala Saldana petitioned for review that to the Eighth Circuit. But to the court, quote, motions to reconsider are disfavored, end quote, and they're reviewed under a highly deferential standard of review. Now, Mr. Ayala Saldana argued that the BIA hadn't actually analyzed whether admin closure was warranted under the seminal decision, Matter of Avetesian. But the Eighth Circuit begged to differ. To the court, the BIA had analyzed all the factors from that case and the court saw no clear error or abuse of discretion in what the BIA did. So the Eighth Circuit denied the petition for review. But hey, admin closure is back, right? And that 
is Isla Saldana v. Garland. That brings us to our final case, Aguilar Montesinos v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on February 10th, 2023. You tried to break me this week, Circuits, but I will not be broken. This decision is about Nexus. Mr. Aguilar is from Honduras. He came to the United States seeking asylum and initially stated in his asylum application that he feared MS-13, quote, because they wanted me to help collect rent from people because I had a car, end quote. He later supplemented his application to include that in November 2012, four armed people robbed him and his wife and threatened to kill them if he told police. A week later, they sent him a note, reminding him that they'd stolen his personal information, know where he lives, know about his family, and that he needed to start collecting a, quote, war tax, end quote, for them. If not, he and his family would be killed. The note ended with, quote, we will be calling and we will be aware of you, and if you do not do it, you will be dead. MS-13, end quote. Mr. Aguilar testified that he didn't report this to the police because the police are often working with the gang. And in fact, MS-13 did keep calling him. And Mr. Aguilar testified that he believed the gang was targeting him because they knew he traveled all over Honduras and that he was an honest person. In support, Mr. Aguilar submitted a statement from his wife who still lives in Honduras and other evidence. The immigration judge found Mr. Aguilar credible and presumably conceded that death threats from MS-13 are terrifying and that they were credible. However, the IJ believed that Mr. Aguilar's case was one of, quote, mere resistance to assisting a criminal enterprise, end quote, and that is not a protected ground under asylum law. The BIA affirmed, continuing on that Mr. Aguilar's, quote, refusal to collect the war tax was not viewed as an act of resistance to the gang, which operated as a de facto government in Honduras, end quote but rather appeared more like simple resistance to criminal activity. As you can see, Mr. Aguilar's attorney is attempting to turn anti-gang activity into a political opinion claim by arguing that MS-13 is in effect the government in much of Honduras and therefore resisting them is a political act. Like we discussed at our ALA South Florida conference panel, Shout out ALA South Florida members and all who attended the 2023 conference and the asylum panel. And to the iguana, who meets all three categories. Anyway, and certainly not to intentionally undermine our conference panel, the Eighth Circuit disagreed with Mr. Aguilar's attorney's arguments and upheld the BIA. To the court in a very non-nuanced quote, quote, an asylum applicant's refusal to assist or join a gang is often unrelated to the applicant's political opinion, end quote. But of course, sometimes it is. The Eighth Circuit went through its prior precedent, supporting its quote in this decision. For what it's worth, the Eighth Circuit called MS-13 very, quote, powerful and politically influential, end quote. And that is not an insignificant quote for future gang cases. But the court just didn't believe that Mr. Aguilar's refusal to comply with the gang's demands was for political reasons. It was for other, legitimate, but not protected under asylum law, reasons. To be fair, the 8th Circuit totally recognized that asylum claims and nexus must be considered on a case-by-case basis and an evidence-by-evidence case. For example, quote, the circumstances could show that even if a gang's actions amounted to extortion, the gang might have been motivated to persecute the victim because of a statutorily protected ground, end quote. Remember that. 
IJs and the BIA cannot simply hold that extortion by gangs in all cases doesn't equate to persecution. But here, the record didn't show otherwise. The IJ and the BIA were reasonable to view this record as merely horrific criminal activity. But wait, said Mr. Aguilar. What about the fact that during this litigation, the U.S. government literally indicted the brother of Honduras's president for drug trafficking, showing involvement with MS-13 at the highest level of the Honduran government? Yes, what about that seemingly important fact? Well, to the Eighth Circuit, even though the BIA appears to have mistakenly understood Mr. Aguilar's argument on this point, it was harmless error. To the Eighth Circuit, the indictment shows simply that corruption plagues Honduras, and that was already in the record. And in any event, the indictment about the president of Honduras's brother wasn't specific to Mr. Aguilar's case. The Eighth Circuit went on to reject a variety of very smart arguments brought by Mr. Aguilar's very smart attorneys and deny the petition for review. Here's some non-citizen good to conclude. Want to win a similar case in the Eighth Circuit? Well, as this panel points out, check out the 2004 Eighth Circuit decision, De Brenner v. Ashcroft. There, asylum was granted to an applicant from Peru, quote, because her persecution was sufficiently related to gang-imputed political opinions. The gang had labeled the applicant and her family as members and supporters of the ruling party, and had mistakenly identified her, end quote, as working for a senior party member. Plus, quote, the records showed that the persecutors had imputed certain political opinions to all wealthy Peruvians like the applicant, end quote. How about all that? That's how you do it with gang cases. Who cares if it was decided 19 years ago by the Eighth Circuit? Still good law. Make your case like DeBrenner v. Ashcroft. And that is Aguilar Montesinos v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.